Amen. Uh, good morning again. We have a little bit of a, a couple of switches this morning. Pastor Woody is feeling under the weather. Um, got a note from Kim last night. said that she thinks his fever broke, and I think after two or three days, he finally admitted that it might be the flu. Um, so we gladly told him to stay home today, uh, keep his cooties. Um, but then also in your program, we said we were going to um, have a kind of consecration of ministry for Elias and Idotris Joseph. And Pastor Woody was bummed to, to miss it, but they actually, the Josephs texted me this morning um, bright and early. Um, apparently they had an emergency that they had to get to anyway, so we're not going to be able to do that. So you're stuck with me, so hi. Um, I wanted to open our, our time together with um, a prayer by uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. Um, this is a lady that I grew up seeing a lot, especially in February for Black History Month. Um, we would have her picture on the wall, and no one ever told me what she did. Um, a lot of what I learned about Martin Luther King, there was a, a great comedian, one of my favorites, who said, you know, even though we're black, we don't teach about Black History Month. Like, all I ever knew about Black History Month was Martin Luther King. You know, he's like, I went to college and I took a class and the first question was an easy quiz and it said, who was the, the lady who wouldn't give up his seat on the bus? And he goes, ooh, that's hard. Was it Martina Luther King? Um, but it wasn't. Um, so one of the things I love about Mary McLeod Bethune, though, is um, she was one of the greatest educators, not just for black children, but I think in the 20th century. Um, she was a daughter of slaves. She was one of 17 children. Um, she was someone who grew up not just going to school, but teaching the rest of the kids. And, and God kind of used that to, to spawn a ministry that to this day we're still talking about her, um, that a daughter of slaves was going to the White House even. Um, she's a great, great story. But I think a lot of times when we talk about some of these people, we um, we're too easily dismiss their Christian faith. You know, we too easily talk about, you know, this is a great person in history. But um, there was a lot of them who were deeply committed to Jesus. So when I found this prayer, it fits perfectly with where I wanted to go this morning. But I want to share this prayer by uh, Mary McLeod Bethune as our opening prayer before we get to our scripture. So please pray with me. Father, we call thee Father because we love thee. We're glad to be called thy children and to dedicate our lives to the service that extends through willing hearts and hands to the betterment of all mankind. We send a cry of thanksgiving for people of all races, creeds, classes, and colors, people the world over, and pray that through the instrumentality of our lives that the spirit of peace, joy, fellowship, and brotherhood shall circle the world. We know that this world is filled with discordant notes, but help us, Father, to so unite our efforts that we may all join in one harmonious symphony for peace and brotherhood, justice and equality and opportunity for all men. The task performed today with forgiveness for all our errors, we dedicate, dear Lord, to thee. Grant us strength and courage and faith and humility sufficient for the task assigned to us. Amen and amen. So this morning I wanted to um, kind of have a, a sermon on something that I think as Christians we all know or should know. Um, I'm not going to say anything new to you this morning, hopefully. And if it is new, welcome. Um, however, though, I think that sometimes the, the deepest truths of our faith are the ones that so easily we dismiss. Sometimes I think the deepest truths of our faith are the ones that we don't do a lot of work dwelling on and, and, and resting on that reality. So I think it's not just about knowing what I'm going to share you this morning, but it's holding on to it. You know, the Bible calls us to walk in light of what we know. And I think this is something that we all need to walk in light of. And that message for you this morning is simply, God defends the weak. But I think it's important that as Christians that we not only know that, but that we hold on to it. Because it's easy to see the weak. 
It's easy to see brokenness. It's easy to see destruction. It's easy to see the world not as it should be. But if we can hold on to the fact that our God defends the weak, then maybe we can persevere. That maybe we can keep fighting. That maybe we're not overwhelmed and discouraged and paralyzed, but maybe we're partnering with him to defend the weak like our God defends the weak. Amen? As I was thinking through about this God defending the weak, I, was, uh, I flashed back to a, a rather embarrassing story. I, I keep saying that I need to do this to flesh this out a little bit better because I know a lot of you are visual learners, but um, I know you can, this would be hard for you to imagine, but when I was in high school, when I started high school, I was 4'11 and about 90 pounds, right? And I, I keep saying this, but I got to bring in pictures, but it's always tricky because I haven't nailed down my calculations because depending on the pictures, my head size, you know, changes. Um, so my head of that 90 pounds was either about 25% or a good third of all my weight, right? It's like when the wind blew, I would just go in that direction. Um, so needless to say, right, like I wasn't the biggest, strongest guy. Um, and I also grew up with a sibling, some things some of you might be able to imagine. If you don't have a sibling, this story is going to be a little stretch for you, but you're going to have to use your imagination. Um, so I grew up with a sibling, and you know, sometimes siblings fight, right? It happens. Um, the one time we got into such a big brawl that we tore the whole house apart. I mean, we flipped tables, we broke stuff. Um, it was, it, the house looked a mess, right? And, you know, when mom got home, then we realized that if the house looks a mess, you know, like we were going to look a mess by the time she was done with us, right? So after that situation, we decided the next time we're going to fight, we're not going to break anything, right? We're just going to split the house, right? And some of you with siblings might have done this, right? So we split the entire house in half, right? He had his side of the kitchen. I had my side of the kitchen. He had his side of the rest, uh, restaurant. He had his side of the fridge. I had my side of the fridge. We split the couch in half. We rotated TV times, right? Like it's like we had one TV. So it's like if you get a half hour, I get the next half hour. We split everything down the middle. And I'm really proud of us because we were selfish enough to let this go on for a while right? We were real, real good at this. We were really good at splitting the house and, and staying out of each other's way, right? This went on for a little bit until, you know, my brother re realized that, you know, the stronger get to sometimes dictate the rules, right? Like the strong can determine the rules and the borders and what's fair, right? You know, and then I say this story not because, you know, you used to beat me around. Like I was actually really proud of myself. I was a great athlete. You know, I was ranked number one in the whole city of Philadelphia when um, Pennsylvania racist, you know, like kept us out of PIAA, but that's another side story. We'll talk about that some other time, right? Like they did it for like 50 years. We couldn't be in PIAA. Like I think I was the only one ranked in the state of Pennsylvania who couldn't go to states, but that's I'm over it 20 years later, almost. Um, but, right? So I was like, I was a tough kid, but he was bigger than me, right? So I think it took until like my junior or senior year where I felt comfortable that I can not only fight back, but I can put some pain on him, right? Um, but he realized he was bigger. So he started realizing that like, hmm, why do I only get half the couch when I can get, I don't know, all of it? Why do I only get half the fridge when I can put myself whatever I want? What's he going to do? Why do I only get a half hour of TV when my show goes an hour, right? And that's before the days of DVR, so you can't, like, pause it and watch it later. Like, I'm just going to watch my show. And the reason I'm picking on my, my brother this morning is because, one, he deserves it, right? <laughs> um, but two, though, I think the reason I'm picking on him is because I think there's something universal that's very natural that I think even as Christians we let seep in if we're not careful. And, and that, that's my simple question is, you know, why is it so natural for us as people to pray on those who are weak? Why is it so easy for us to, 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 to make rules and then bend them, right, to make it more favorable for us? Why is it so easy for us to flex our muscles, right, even at the expense of other people? Why is that so easy? 
Why is it so easy to take advantage of the weak, to take advantage of the broken, to take advantage of those disenfranchised, to take advantage of those that are left behind? You know, why is it so easy for us to sometimes see those people who are broken and weak and left behind? Why is it so easy? Maybe we're not directly doing anything to keep them there, but why is it so easy to turn away? Why is it so easy to just keep doing what we're doing? Why is it so easy? You know, I think the message this morning is God defends the weak. But if you want the, the, the Cliff Notes version and the end version, my last question is going to be, do we? God defends the weak. Do we? You know, our, our text this morning comes from Proverbs, and Solomon is a great, great person. I, I used to grow up... Um, in Sunday school, in church, and I'd hear about these great heroes of the faith, right? But what they never tell you in Sunday school is never read past the lesson, right? Because you got David and Goliath, and you're like, this is amazing. He believed in God, and he slayed the giant, right? Then you got a couple chapters later, you're like, he did what with Bathsheba and whose husband? What did he do? You know, it's like you grew up hearing all these great people. It's like Abraham, a great man of faith. Wait, he lied two times? that his wife was his sister just so he wouldn't get in trouble, right? So I think my Sunday school teachers did a good job. They gave me a thirst for the Bible, but I think I kind of wish I would stop reading because the next week I had questions, right? Um, so I struggled with some of these people, right? And it took probably until Peter for me to find someone I'm like, oh, I'm just like that guy, right? Um, and then it took till seminary. One of my advisors was like, you know, the easiest way to solve all this is just realize, you know, God's the hero of the story, right? And I was just like, that's so good. Like, we lift all these people up like they're great, great people of faith, and they were, but they were also perfectly human, right? And I think for us sometimes, we don't take advantage of the wisdom of Solomon. We know everything Solomon did that was wrong, right? We know how he had so many wives, and, and he turned away the people, and he lost his kingdom, and he's not worth his salt because as powerful as he was, right, he took his eyes and focus off of God. But it was also good that Solomon did. And part of the good that Solomon did was give us a bunch of these wisdom literature, right? And I think what I love about Proverbs and the wisdom literature is Solomon usually puts two things forward. The first one is he says, God is the source of all wisdom, right? And I think that's important for us to remind, especially as Westerners, as Americans, because that means that our wisdom doesn't always come through books, right? Our wisdom doesn't always come in what we know, right? Our wisdom has to come from God. Solomon himself says, you know what, man? There's nothing new under the sun, Right? And I think he knew that because he knew all wisdom comes from God. The second thing about wisdom I think we pick up from Solomon is that wisdom often comes from making the right choice. Right? It might not be very smart to jump off a bridge. You might be like, oh, that hurts. Right? But you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is looking at somebody else jump off the bridge and be like, no, I'm good. I'm not going to jump off the bridge. Right? That's what wisdom Wisdom is the ability, right, to see something else that someone experienced and to learn from it. You know, our world often tells us, you know, you got to experience life. You got to make these choices. You got to try everything one time. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is taking a step back and be like, you did that and ended up here. I think I'll pass, right? That's what wisdom is, right? And the thing I love about these Proverbs, though, Solomon was very, very practical. And some of these Proverbs are just in our spirit. You know, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, right? That's something you can hold on the rest of your life knowing that if I put my trust in God, if I submit to God, if I say, you know what, God, in all things, I don't care about the wisdom of this world. I don't even care the wisdom that I think I know. But if I'm willing to see what you say and how you call me to live, if I'm willing to submit to you, Lord, you will direct my path. And what I love about that is sometimes we think direct our path means he's going to hold our hands and, and maybe walk through with us, right? But that's not what Solomon meant. 
You know what, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, like your path is going to be a little bit rocky. Your path is going to be a little bit dirty. But as the job of a king in ancient Israel, they had two jobs. One was to sit pretty and collect taxes. The other was to maybe fight war, but David would choose whether or not he did that. Um, but the third job that they had was to make paths straight. And what that means was they were better than Penda, right? Like the, 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 the roads would all be crowded or snow. And the job of the king was to ensure that the paths were cleared so the people can walk through. So I'm telling you that this morning because I'm saying, when I say God will direct your paths, it doesn't mean the bad won't happen. It doesn't mean life won't happen. It doesn't mean struggle won't come. But I can tell you this morning that in the struggle... When the path is all sort of carted off, when the snow is falling, when the tree branches are in the way, when I say God will direct your path, that means he'll be there with you, clearing the road so that you can walk through. You know, another proverb I love says, you know, train children in the way they will go, right? Because when they get old, they won't turn from it. And I think for too long, we too easily put that on parents, right? And some of us can say, well, I don't have any kids or I don't have anyone I've adopted. I don't have anyone. But here's the thing about this Christianity bit that all of us are trying to navigate our way through. All of us are parents. All of us are parents. Right? When you enter the faith, God desires that you are discipling people, that you have people in your life that you're parenting and pouring into. And it doesn't just have to be the people in your houses. It can be people at your workplaces. It can be people you meet on the street, the guy you see at the, the coffee shop every day, right? All of us are called to make disciples, right? Like Jesus didn't say, you know, for, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations if you're a pastor, I want you to go disciple and make disciples of all nations if you like to. I want you to go and tell people about me if you want to. No, that's not the Great Commission. We're all called to make disciples. So when we say train up a child in the way that they should go, that's a call not just for parents. That's a call for every single one of us as Christians. So my next question for you this morning is, who are you training in the faith? Who are you personally building up? Who are you making a disciple of? Who are you showing what Jesus looks like to? Train a child in the way they should go. It doesn't matter if they're 7 or 70. If they're new to the faith or they're interested by Jesus, they're a child. And there's your job to go and make disciples. Amen? But that's not even our sermon. Our sermon this morning is on God defending the weak. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs 23, 10, and 11. I think we'll put it up on the wall as well. Proverbs 23, 10 to 11. Here Solomon writes, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. Read it again. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong, and he will take up their case against you. You see, ancient Israelites, maybe we can relate to, like my own brother Joe, they struggled, right, struggled with the idea of flexing their muscles to their own benefit, right? Because you see, you have to understand, a lot of us, when we think about the promised land that, that Israel got, we think of it as like, oh, they went to a country and they sat down. But what you need to understand is literally every single family got a promised land, right? Everything was allotted in the country that belonged to each family. And that's very, very important because we just think of it as like, oh, it's a place that they all lived, kind of. But God was specific that every family mattered, it didn't matter if you were descended from Moses. It didn't matter if you were descended from Joshua. It didn't matter if you didn't know who your father was. It didn't matter, right, if you were not an Israelite, but you're one of those in Exodus 12 when it says, who left Egypt? Anyone who believed, right? So there were people who weren't Jewish that left Egypt, right? That's a fun one, right? 
It didn't matter if you didn't have that connection to Israel. When you believed and you joined the family, you got allotted land. You know, I've really struggled over the years to, to kind of explain why land is so important. Because I think as us as Christians, we don't really get it, right? Because we can't lose our Jesus. That's a blessing, right? I may be the greatest sinner in the world. I can't lose God's love for me. I may not be the wealthiest one in the world, but I might lose everything I have. I might lose my health. I might lose my sound mind or what I think is my sound mind. I might lose everything that this world values, but I will never lose Jesus. So I used to think maybe, maybe the land is kind of like Jesus for them. Then I kept reading. I always make that mistake in the Bible. Then I kept reading and they lost the land. I'm like, I need a new analogy. But I think the land is important because it was God's promise fulfilled. The land was important because it was their inheritance. The land was important because after centuries upon centuries upon centuries of praying, of suffering, of calling out to God, it was God's provision to say, here, I love you, this is yours. But then we get to this passage. You see, back then in ancient Israel, people didn't have, you know, inspectors go out and say, this is where your boundary ends, right? So they had to make their own boundaries. Remember, these are former slaves who are now finally in the promised land. So they were creative, right? When they parceled out the land, they said, okay, we'll dig a trench here, right? Because you can't skip over the trench. If you trip, you're on Hank's land now, right? So we'll dig a trench here, right? Some of them were just like, you know what, let's just get a stone and we'll put stones up and, and that'll be our boundaries, right? I used to think this was weird, but in my family, we had this tradition where, like, every maybe five years, you reach, like, a 25, 30, 35. And every five years, you get, like, new knowledge, right? Stuff everyone else knows, but they, they feel the need that now you're old enough to know. So I remember one time, my one uncle was like, hey, we need to go back to Liberia. I was like, really, we? I don't understand this we, you know? And he was just like, you know, there's been fighting. I was like, oh, I don't know, 20 years of civil war? Yeah, I know. He's like, but we need to go um, um, get our land. I was like, what is this hour you speak of? You know, like, and he was like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, the war, things are peaceful, things are settled down, but we got to go find the trenches and the markers. And I was just like, after 20 years of fighting, there's still trenches? You know, like there's markers, there's stones? And he's like, yeah, 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 we got land stones. And I realized in my family that maybe it's just my family, but we choose which Bible verses and stuff to hold on to. But when they were parsing out their land, they're like, well, that's how they did it in Israel, so we'll dig trenches, right? So I think he's still looking, so maybe pray for him. Um, but the reason I think this is important, though, is because it was a physical representation that God was providing. But there's something happening in here that Solomon points to in these two verses. The first thing he wants us to know is that the strong, the powerful, would find the trenches, and they would just cover it up. So when the poor came back and said, oh, that's my land over there, they'll be like, where's your trench? Because strong tend to what? Flex their muscle over the week. So all of a sudden, that trench that represented your land and your boundary now became my land because I'm stronger. What are you going to do about it? Or maybe they had boundary stones there, so the, the strong would do what? They would just take it up and move it. They would move it. Why? Because they were stronger. What are you going to do about it? And that's what was happening. And then you're like, you know what? I'll go to the courts. Now, for some of us, we might know the courts aren't always our friends. Right? But the theory of court is that it's a place where you can go and there will be fairness. And even in ancient Israel, we found that the rich, that the powerful, that the connected could just pay off the judges. And Solomon says, you know what? There's a lot of you who then the people can't go to the courts because when they go to the courts, the courts are looking at their friends on the other side and they're letting them keep the land. 
the weak, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, they were seemingly left on their own. They were seemingly at the mercy of the powerful and the connected. They were on their own because they were weak. You know, I think it's very easy to hear that and say what? Some things never change. Right? It's very easy to hear that and be like, that's what sin does, and we're still living in a fallen world. It's easy to hear that and be like, you know what? That's why we keep exploiting. You easy to hear that and be like, you know what? We still have a people of greed. It's easy to hear that and be paralyzed. Remember what I said the message is this morning. God defends the weak, amen? Solomon in our text says, are the weak on their own? No. They're not on their own versus the dishonest. They're not on their own because God defends the weak. Now, I talked a little bit about how the land was their inheritance. But the land was also owned by each family. And the thing that Solomon is aggrieved by is that you have to understand Solomon is one of the wealthiest people. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to believe this, but everyone believes that Solomon was one of the wealthiest, smartest people who ever lived. Right? And he was a king. But Solomon himself, of all the warts and wrong that he did, he knew that the land was a sacred blessing that God gave the people. And even he, as king, couldn't come in and take it. Right? In the West, we have something called eminent domain, right? If you look in our history books, you have something called manifest destiny, right? We come up with these God-sounding terms to, to do whatever we want, right? So governments and kings can just go in and take your land. That's a long-standing tradition. But Solomon knew there was such sacredness in the land that he says, I'm rich, I'm powerful, and I can't even touch this land, but you are rich and powerful, and you're taking advantage of the weak? How dare you? How dare you? Solomon also know that God wanted the people to have this land so bad that he instituted something called Jubilee, right? And this gives me a lot of hope because what it said was that, you know, after 50 years, if your land was taken away from you or maybe it was something you did wrong, and I think I take a lot of freedom in this because I'm not perfect, right? He's like, even if you did something wrong to lose your land, maybe you made a wrong investment, right? And you couldn't pay off the debt, so you, you sold off your debt, right? You sold off your land to try to pay off that debt. God instituted something called Jubilee, which means that after 50 years, guess what happened? You got your land back. We have a God who so cared about his people that he put provisions in there against their own stupidity, Right? But he also put provisions in there that said, you powerful people, leave them alone. This land is sacred. So you can maybe understand that Solomon isn't just writing wisdom nature, but this is something that's deep in him. He's like, I'm the richest, most powerful man in the world, and I'm not touching the land. Why are you? After 50 years, they might lose everything, but we have to return it to that family every 50 years. Why are you taking advantage of them? Solomon warns the powerful to not possess, encroach, or harm, or defraud the weak. And that's a message I think all of us need to hold on to. Do not prey on the weak. Do not prey on the fatherless. Do not prey on the widows. Do not prey on the poor. And we might think, you know, maybe I'm not doing anything physically that's doing that. But maybe how I think about the weak and the fatherless and the widows, maybe that's what needs to be checked at the door. Maybe the fact that they're fatherless and widows and poor, maybe I think my even little smidgen thing, oh, maybe they deserve it. Maybe that's what needs to be checked at the door. Or maybe what needs to be checked at the door is realizing that in this big world out there, I might not be doing anything physically to make them weak and poor. But if I'm just looking and moving on, God says, I'm going to defend the weak. Why aren't you? 
Because you don't have to do anything to put people disenfranchised. You don't have to do anything to, to make people feel the, like the least of these as society makes them. You don't have to do anything to keep people down and keep stomping them down. And usually that's our measure. We measure it by the world. The world will be like, we say, well, that's not bad because I'm not doing this to put them there. And God says, no, 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 no. If they're there by the society that you're benefiting from and they're still there and you're not doing anything to defend the weak, how are you my child? How are you mine? You know, one of the things we say, integrity is what you do when no one's looking. And the powerful use that to their advantage because they might have dug that trench and filled it up in the middle of the night when no one was looking. They might have paid that money or that extra tax to the judge when no one was looking. But Solomon has a firm reminder in here for us this morning is that as Christians, you never have the privilege to say God is not looking. You never have the privilege to say, I'm going to do this in the heat of night. I love Psalm 139. It's one of the greatest scriptures in all the Bible. It talks about how God perfectly knows us. But one of the most haunting verses in that Psalm, David says, man, if I make my bed in hell, if I go up to the heavens, even there you are. There's nothing you can do that God does not see. So if you're defrauding the weak, if you're ignoring the powerless, if you're ignoring the people who are suffering, if you're ignoring the marginalized, God says, I see it because I am. I am is looking. The Father is looking. The one that's up high is the guardian. He's the protector. They might be weak, but he is strong. And he's responsible for the weak. He's all-powerful, and there are his children. God says, I am their defender. And that means that maybe in this life, I might step up to the plate and defend them and be their attorney. Right? And I think for a lot of us, we take this false peace and like, well, at the end of the day, you know, like we read in our verse this morning. We have it in our thinking this morning. At the end of the day, God's going to sit us all down, right? And he's going to have a trial, right? But here's the thing. I love Matthew 25. There's a couple of nuances we forget in Matthew 25. And it's not just about God doing it at the end of time, right? It's about God has started his judgment even right now. Because when God says, what are you doing for what you call the least of these? He's basing it on your life. He's not basing it on, oh, now it's over, we'll assess. He's taking his assessment right now. Because God says, you know what? They might be voiceless, but I am their voice. They might be orphans, but I am their father. They might be widows, but I am their husband. They might be marginalized, but I am the one who will fight for them. You know, in Matthew 25, the other nuance we miss is that when Jesus says least of these, he means what you call least of these. He means what your society makes least of these. God loves all his children. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is worth their dignity. So when we talk about weak, we need to think about not just the marginalized, but what people whose dignity are we constantly ignoring? Because God loves all of them. So when Jesus has least of these in Matthew 25, I think some of us as good Christian people were like, oh, this is what I'm doing to help the least of these. And I think Jesus says, who? Because those are my children. Those are your sisters and brothers. Those are the ones I created in my image. Those are the ones I died on Calvary for. How dare you call them least of these? In Matthew 25, we know that story in the end, how Jesus separates. I think what's interesting is I had a, I had a class when I was in school in the Messiah. I had a professor who did something that was very, very remarkable. On one hand, he made me want to be a lawyer, right? And this isn't even like the lawyers who do good things. Like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be rich. I want to be rich so I can buy the Mets because they're terrible. And I want to buy the Mets so I can win because I'm brilliant, right? I had everything mapped out, right? 
But then he also made me not want to be a lawyer by the end of the class, right? And what was fascinating is we'd have these big debates about everything you could think of, right? And it was genius on his part because he was trying to force us to not just be stuck in one way of thinking and one way of looking at things. So you would go into class and you knew there was a debate that day, but you didn't know what side you were on, right? So it's like you couldn't be like, well, this is what I believe. This is firmly in my person. I'm ready to argue it because he might put you on the other side. And now you're just like, my grade depends on how well I argue this, right? But I think what I learned from him is that it's not about your arguments. He called it the great, so what? So what? It doesn't matter what you know about Jesus. How is it changing the impact in your life? It doesn't matter this morning that you know that God defends the weak. So what? What does that have to do for you? I think there's two things I hope it does for you this morning. The first one is I hope it does some self-reflection. Because I think a lot of times we make these things so big and we easily paralyze ourselves, right? So what you can start with is your person. So the question then becomes, where am I powerful? Where am I privileged? Where do I have authority? Where do I have influence? And then am I using that power, privilege, authority, and influence for good or for bad? Right? Make it deeper. Am I using it for myself or for the kingdom? Am I using it to lift my brother or sister up? Am I using it to maybe step on them as I go up? Am I using it for God's glory or my own? We all have power, authority, influence. We all have privileges. How are you using that? So that's the self-reflection. That's the place you need to begin. But I think the other place we need to realize is in Matthew 25, you know how Jesus defines the weak? He defines them as hungry. He defines them as thirsty. He defines them as, you know, he calls them stranger. We do the grace, grace of calling them illegals or undocumented or aliens. The Bible consistently calls them strangers and welcomes them in. He calls them naked in Matthew 25. He calls them the sick and he calls them the prisoner. And I was thinking about that this morning. We think about if that's how Jesus defines weak, the question becomes this, right? It's not about am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I in or am I out? The question becomes our Father is working to defend the weak. Are we? God is working to feed the hungry. Are you? God is working to quench the thirst of the thirsty. Are you? God's calling strangers, immigrants, illegal immigrants. He's calling them his children. I think one of the most craziest things to think about our Christian faith is that where Christianity is growing the most right now are the ones that we're so easily called the illegals. The global south. That's Africa. That's Asia. That's Latin America. That's where the church is thriving. Those are our sisters and brothers too. How are you clothing the naked? How are you helping the prisoner? You know, I think it's a great question if we're willing to ask, you know, what is H. Beck doing to feed the hungry? But this morning, the better question is, what are you doing to feed the hungry? And I think spiritual hunger is real, but I know too many kids around the world, even in our country, who are dying of starvation, and we're God's people. How are we feeding them? I know too many people, millions of people around the world who don't have the privilege to go home tonight and flip the spigot and drink clean water. Or in Haiti, one of the most harrowing things in my life, one of the most horrid things I've ever seen was we went to this village, and around the village there was a trough. And if you were blessed to be at the beginning of the trough, 
If you are blessed to be where the river enters into the village, you got clean water to wash in, to cook in, to, do your, your, to clean your babies in. But there are so many people in that same village who are on the back end of the trough, which means that it had to go around to every other house and come all the way down. We have people, millions of people in this world, who don't know the dignity of what it means to have clean water. So it's not just about what HBIC is doing. How are you helping the thirsty? There's people who are sick. The things I love about our church is thousands of people, I think it was thousands of people, came to this church on a Thursday in 2017 and got basic health care. Right? But what are you doing to help the sick? And it might not mean that, you know, you, you work at a hospital. It might mean you call a hospital and be like, hey, is anybody struggling I just come and sit with? Is anybody I can pray for? What are you doing to feed the sick? It's people who are imprisoned. What are you doing? I'm not, and some of you might be called to, to fight prison reform, and that's beautiful. But what are you doing to help the imprisoned? Because the joy of Matthew 25 is God's assessment has already begun, right? He doesn't say, you know, at the end of your life, you fed the hungry. He said, no, 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 no. Are you feeding the hungry? Because when you feed them, you feed me. Are you feeding the thirsty? Because when you give them water to quench their thirst, you're giving me water. What about the imprisoned? Do they know your love and touch? And I keep coming back to this. I think it's so important for us to hold on to. If this world doesn't know that God loves them, if this world doesn't know what God looks like, if this world doesn't know God's comfort, God's grace, God's mercy, that's not Jesus' fault. That's not the Spirit's fault. That is our fault. That's our work. That is our work. God has left the Spirit, and he's left you and me, sisters and brothers. That's all the world has. The Spirit. Jesus came in physical form, right? So when he died and rose again, he's in heaven. That's what Jesus is doing. All that's left down here is the Spirit and you. So if this world doesn't know what the, what the love of God feels like, this world doesn't know that I may be hungry and I need something to eat and there's nothing for me to eat. If this world doesn't know that I'm thirsty and there's nothing for me to drink. If this world doesn't know that, yeah, I messed up, yeah, I'm in prison, but who loves me? God's doing his part. So my question this morning is, why aren't we? What it means to be made in the image of God, and we'll end with this, is simply, you know, we all can, well, we all know statues, right? I think when we think about the image of God, most of us are okay with being a statue. But the thing about a statue is it might remind you of the person it's graven image of until it gets broken or or until the birds come and poop on them, right? Like, most of us want to be statues and image of God in that sense. But in Genesis, when God created Eve and Adam, when he says, you're made in my image, it's not like this thing you're not supposed to touch, right? But what it means, the closest representation, and you can trust me, it's in the Hebrew. The closest representation is, are you a living statue? Which means you're not sitting there. Which means you're not getting pooped on, right? Which means that you're not getting your nose broken or broken. It means every single time as you walk this walk, as you live in your house, as you love your family, as you love your neighborhood, as you live in your city, as you live in your county, as you go to work on, sun- on Sunday, as you go to, well, some people work Sundays, as you go to work, every single thing that you're doing, are you a living statue of Jesus Christ? That's what it means to be in the image of God. It doesn't mean, oh, I just reflect him sometimes. It means every single time I'm living to reflect God's glory. Are you a living statue? Are you just standing there? Because we have a world that's full of weak. We have a world that's full of brokenness. We have a world that's full of darkness. But I'm here to tell you this morning that if you're saying, God, 
I want to defend the weak because I'm made in your image, because I'm your child, because that's the work you're doing, and that's the work I'm privileged to do with you. So that's the challenge this morning. How are you defending the weak? How are you feeding the hungry? How are you clothing the naked? How are you loving the stranger and the immigrant? How are you being God's love to this world? I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we have this closing song. I wanted to close with um, another prayer I was able to find. Um, this one's actually from Coretta Scott King. Um, again, I think one of the things we forget is that Coretta lived for decades after Martin, right? Another thing that we don't know is that Coretta was actually Martin's teacher on a lot of different issues, right? Shocking, I know. He's Dr. Martin Luther King. But a lot he learned from Coretta. And this prayer I love because I think it's a prayer that hopefully galvanizes us this morning. And I want to pray this over us. Coretta called this a prayer for divine perspective. And the intercessors can also come up. Let's pray this prayer together. I think it's a word in here for us. There's a couple lines in here, but one of my favorite ones is, may the cross ever remind us of thy great love. Let's pray together. Eternal and everlasting God, who art the father of all mankind, as we turn aside from the hurly-burly of everyday living, may our hearts and souls, yea, our very own spirits, be lifted upward to thee. For it is from thee that all blessing comes. Keep us ever mindful of our dependence upon thee. For without thee, our efforts are but not. We pray for thy divine guidance as we travel the highways of life. Lord, we pray for more courage. We pray for more faith. And above all, we pray for more love. May we somehow come to understand the true meaning of thy love as revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of thy Son, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. May the cross ever remind us of thy great love. For greater love hath no one than this. This is our supreme example. O oh God, may we be constrained to follow in the name of the Spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen? Amen. As we sing this last song, I'd like to invite the intercessors up. And anyone, please come up for prayer. We'd love to pray for you with whatever's going on. So please stand up and let's sing together.